Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word. Thank you for the freedom that we have to look into your word and to proclaim your word, to study your word, to grow in your word, to demonstrate the truth of your word. We ask that that freedom would be protected. We ask that you would give us boldness and confidence in your word and in the proclamation of it. We ask that this morning you would give us hearts that are sensitive to you, that are open to your Holy Spirit, and we surrender. We say, accomplish your will, whatever that might be in us and through us at this time. Grant us discernment and wisdom, understanding. Grant us a will to apply the truth that we read. Not of ourselves, but a will that is guided and guarded by the Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would enable me and anoint me to proclaim it in such a way as to bring you glory and honor and praise. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 44. This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about God's faithfulness. And God's faithfulness is often tied in with God's goodness, and rightfully so. God is good. He is perfect. He is faithful. And I couldn't help but think that sometimes God's faithfulness is demonstrated in ways that we would not anticipate. And we're going to look at a way that maybe we anticipate but we don't like. God's faithfulness in time of testing In Psalm 119, verse 75, it says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We often look and we consider the faithfulness of God in caring for us, in providing for us, in defending us, and all of these things that we would say are positive, and yet that passage clearly says that God is faithful in that he afflicted me. The next verse does go on about the mercy and the goodness of God. It is in his mercy and his goodness that he afflicts us because his desire for us is good. His desire for us is right. His desire for us is perfect. It is that we would grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that we would edify one another, that we would walk as Christ walked, that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. These are all, this is his desire. His desire is right because nothing in God is, in that sense, negative or evil. It is good even the trials, even the afflicting of God's hand is good. This morning we're going to see that because we're going to be looking at God testing or God bringing a trial. And we have looked at this in the past, particularly in the life of Joseph. What we've been doing is we've been working through the life of Joseph and we've been taking biblical principles from the life of Joseph that we can apply to us today. And so this morning we're going to look at some principles around God's testing or God's trying of his children. And I'm going to read a large chunk this morning, a large passage this morning. The title of it is, and I don't know if this title is going to tie in perfectly with all my points, so you have to bear with me. Take the points even if you leave the, the title, okay? They do tie together, we just have to work at it a little bit. The title is A Change of Heart is Shown in a Change of Action. A Change of Heart is Shown in a Change of Action. We're going to see that. There's a change of heart in Joseph's brothers, which results in a change of action. And it is because a test is applied to them. Pressure is put on them. So that's going to be in Genesis chapter 44. Now we're skipping a few verses because we stopped halfway through or midway through chapter 43. So I want to recap just a little bit about the end of chapter 43, and then we'll move into chapter 44. Last week, we were focusing on the first half of chapter 43. We were talking about fear. We looked at that and examined that. Fear makes a blessing into a curse. Fear makes the ordinary into overwhelming. Fear incapacitates us. 
And fear expects defeat rather than victory. So don't walk in fear, but walk in faith. And prayerfully, you'll get the opposite of all those things that fear accomplishes. Fear is spoken again in those final verses of Genesis chapter 43. In those final verses, we have Jacob releasing Benjamin to go back to Egypt with his brothers to buy grain. Remember, Jacob does not want to do that. He doesn't want to send his favorite son back. He's already lost his first favorite son, Joseph, deems him as dead. 20 years earlier. At this point, we're actually just about 22 years earlier. And he doesn't want to lose Benjamin either. Now, Jacob's other sons, Joseph's brothers, have already gone down, the 10 of them. They've gone down to Egypt and they've bought grain. And Joseph has allowed nine of them to return, but one of them, Simeon, has to stay in Egypt until Joseph's other nine brothers come back and bring Benjamin. That's the first test that's put on them. Bring back Benjamin, and I believe that you're not spies, and you can continue to trade in the land. You'll have grain. It'll all be well, but you have to bring back Benjamin. That was their first test. So finally, after a time of more famine, Jacob says, all right, I don't want him to go, but otherwise we're going to starve. So take Benjamin with you. Go down to Egypt and come back. And so he does. He goes down. Once they're there, they're ushered into the home of Joseph, You see their fear. As I mentioned, it continues to be displayed. It's interesting as you read that. In their fear, they're literally tripping over themselves to explain what has happened with this extra money that they found in their their sacks. Oh, no, it wasn't us. This was found in their sacks. We don't know where it came from, but we brought it back to you. And there's, there's fear tumbling out of them. And that fear is abated a little bit when Simeon is released to them. So they have been reunited with their other brother, Simeon. They go in. They dine with Joseph. And Joseph still at this point does not reveal himself to them. Joseph knows who they are. He knows that they're his brothers. But he hasn't revealed himself to them. That brings us to chapter 44. This is just before or just at the beginning of them returning to Canaan, going back to their father. And it says in chapter 44 in verse 1, and we're going to read the entire chapter this morning. And he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? 
Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judas said, What shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, who is young, his brother is dead, and he alone is left of my mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when they went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go back and buy a little grain. But he said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I came to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen, when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. I realize that is a lengthy portion, but there isn't any portion of it or part of it that we can really leave out. Today we see the testing of Joseph's brother's heart. Joseph is testing them again. This is a test through Benjamin this time. And the question that Joseph is trying to discern is, have the brothers had a change of heart? And if so, will it be shown in more than just their words? Will it be shown in their actions? Remember, Joseph had heard their words of acknowledgement of sin in the past already. The first time, the first test, when they spoke thinking he couldn't understand them. They said, his blood is upon us because we have slain Joseph. And he hears that. He hears acknowledgement. But Joseph is now taking it one step further. Is it just words or is this change of heart true? And if it is true, it will reflect itself in action. Remember as we look at this passage and as we look at principles or as I give you principles that they are simply principles. Not clear-cut commands for you and I. Not likely that um, we'll at any time have to go to a foreign country to buy grain and be set up as thieves and have to bring our brother as uh, kind of to satisfy the master. That isn't likely to happen so we can't look at this story and say ah this is commands. This is literally applied to my life. It doesn't work that way. What we find here are principles. So what are some keys to this narrative that apply to us today? 
Joseph tested his brothers. Well, God tests us in his faithfulness. Are there some principles, some things that we can take from Joseph and his brothers and see as guiding principles for how or why God causes or allows testing in our lives? And I believe that there are. But remember, they are principles. Okay? The first one is that God's design of your trials is specific. And I see that in this passage. It is a principle. It's not a hard and fast rule that must always be applied. But as far as principles go, this is generally true. God's design of trials, of my trial, is specific for me. God's design of your trial is specific for you. Look at how precise and how specific the test for Joseph's brothers is. Look at how well designed this test is. It is virtually perfect to accomplish what he desires from a human perspective. Now, if Joseph tested his brothers in a, such a specific way, and Joseph is human, cannot God, who is divine, test us and try us in a specific way as well? Is he not more capable than Joseph would? We see in verse 1 there, Joseph commands that his, men, his uh, brother's sacks be filled with food. In verse 2, he says, and put my cup in there. He is setting it up. Put my cup in the youngest ones in Benjamin's sack and send them on their way. He is testing them specifically by Benjamin. And then in verse 4, he tells his servant, get up and follow the men. They haven't gone very far. And when you overtake them, I want you to ask a specific question. Why have you repaid good with evil? Why have you done evil when you have been blessed and you've received good? Specific questions, specific scenario, specific test or trial that is being put upon them. And we see that it gets more and more specific. It gets more and more narrow because what is Joseph trying to do? He is replicating the situation from 22 years earlier where his brothers had sold him into slavery. Are you brothers going to be for yourself or for someone else? Are you going to do that which satisfies yourself? Or have you had a change of heart? Are you selfish, self-centered, self-righteous? Do you hate still in the same manner as you hated He is making this test specific to see if there's a change of heart. He's going to test that change of heart by examining their actions. So we see that taking place. Now, there is a passage here that I want to address real quickly. What about this cup of divination? It's mentioned twice. Even that is actually a perfectly planned part of this test on Joseph's brother's. This is not saying here that Joseph practiced divination, at least not as it is commonly understood. Divination is the practice of seeking knowledge of the future or the unknown by supernatural means. Another description would be occultic foretelling. In modern lingo, this cup of divination would be the cup used for reading tea leaves or other such nonsense. That's what it was. Once again, this passage doesn't tell us Joseph practiced divination. He wouldn't have needed to. He is known for his God-given interpretation of dreams. Why would he need to practice this fortune-telling or future reading? Also, Joseph has remained faithful to God. Through everything that's been revealed, he's remained faithful to God through his time of captivity and through his time of blessing. So 13 years of captivity, 7 years of blessing, now 9 years basically of blessing, and he's remained faithful. Why would he need to use mystical powers? He would not have. He would not have relied on anything such as divination, witchcraft, sorcerers, mediums, spiritists, whatever you want to call it. He would have been against them because they would have been contrary to his faith. However, 
It does say that he had a cup of divination. Joseph is acting the role of an Egyptian. And he has been living among the Egyptians for 20-some years now. They were known for this form of fortune-telling. He is using this cup as a prop. And it's a perfectly planned prop because it emphasizes the importance of the cup versus just any regular silver cup. If it had been just a regular silver cup, what would have been the significance of it? They had silver in their bags anyways. They wouldn't have needed to steal just an ordinary silver cup. But they have stolen, in a sense, it's been planted, this cup which is accepted as having mystical or miraculous power. It would have been a perfectly suited prop to accomplish what Joseph wants to accomplish in his brothers. And the stealing of this cup also provides for a bit of a play on words, which further supports the fact that Joseph did not use the cup for actual divination. In verse 15, Joseph says, Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? In other words, I can find this out. I can tell what is going on. I can discern. I can divine would be another word. But when he says it, he doesn't have the cup of divination. It's in Benjamin's bag. So he's saying, don't you think that I can discern? In a sense, even without this cup of divination. He had discernment which was given to him by God. In this case, he discerned perfectly well because he set the scenario up. He didn't need this cup of divination. That's a long way of saying this passage does not teach that Joseph used divination, but that he didn't need to. Instead, Joseph shows brilliant wisdom in the use of this cup. Specifically, it's perfectly planned to accomplish the test that he wants his brothers to go through. Every detail of their test is specific. It is well thought through. It applies pressure to the brothers in exactly the right way, exactly the right time, exactly as Joseph intended it to. Their response further narrows the confines of this test. When faced with the charge of stealing, the brothers reply in verse 9, With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. We also will be my Lord's slaves. So this is getting narrower. This is getting better because Joseph, that's exactly what he wants. They have just said, albeit they weren't thinking that this would be the outcome, but they have just said, if the cup's found in Benjamin's in the sack there in his pack, he can die. Well, now it's going to be found. Now the pressure is going to be applied. It is a specific test with a desired specific outcome. And then again, when the cup is discovered in Benjamin's sack, we see the specific outcome. What does it say in verse 13? They tore their clothes. In verse 14, Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. They fell before him on the ground. And Joseph asked them about this. And then verse 16, Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves. And then notice, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. They here acknowledge their sin. The brothers, the ten of them, in a sense, Benjamin not quite acknowledging his sin yet of stealing the cup, and he didn't need to acknowledge it because he didn't actually steal the cup. But the ten acknowledged their sin, not of stealing the, the cup, but of betraying Joseph. 
the sin of selling Joseph into slavery. Look at the distinction between their guilt and the guilt of Benjamin. Judah is accepting guilt that has been weighing on him for 20 plus years. He is acknowledging that they, the 10 brothers, are guilty. The guilt of stealing the cup wasn't plural here, but their sin is. God has found out our sin. Stealing the cup wasn't the sin. Not that they were guilty of, especially those 10 brothers. They were guilty of the blood of Joseph himself. The response here to this perfectly arranged test has produced guilt. It has resulted in acknowledgement of guilt. That had been the case before as well. Remember when they were first accused of being spies and they're talking to themselves? They acknowledged that their sins of the past were the direct cause for the scenario that they were in. And they do the same again here. They recognize and acknowledge their sin. Their test was specific. Now, I am not saying that Joseph's perfect setup of this test for his brothers is always the way God will do it in your life. But if Joseph's test was virtually perfect, elicited the right response, isn't it more than likely that God's tests and trials for us are even more perfect, even more specific, even more intentionally designed for us? If Joseph, in his weakness and fallenness as a human, could work out such a specific test for his brothers, cannot God, who is not limited, but is all-powerful and all-knowing, test us and try us perfectly? Are not the trials from God's hand uniquely designed for us? Nothing is happenstance with God. Nothing is coincidental. Nothing is circumstantial. He is God. He will always do what is perfect and just. He will always do what is for our good and for his glory. So the tests and the trials that he puts us through and allows us to go through, apart here from tests and trials that come as a direct result of our own sin, I want to be clear on that, though even there God is sovereign, those tests and trials are perfectly designed to perfectly accomplish what is good and necessary for us by a perfect and good God. And don't we know that to be true in our own life as well? I mean, there's a lot of time where we don't want to recognize that as true. But haven't we been through something and we look back on it and we realize that was exactly what was necessary for God to accomplish that exact thing in us? That it was specific. It's not a nice thought because it forces us to look at what God is working on in our life. Sometimes we may not be able to see how or even why God's design in these tests and trials is good or is for us or is specific. But I'm sure that at some point in your life, God has brought the specific situation to test you and develop you or mature you in some specific area. God doesn't do anything by chance. He doesn't do anything by chance. So going forward, ask yourself, as you face tests and trials, whether they're small or whether they're monumental, what does God wish to accomplish in my life through this? What does God want me to learn through this? Is it possible to examine the trial and come to a conclusion about why this is necessary? And if it's possible, then is it possible to respond quicker and so learn quicker so that we can get out from underneath that trial or the test anyways? If it's designed specifically for us, Wouldn't we be wise to ask, okay, God, what is your specific intention in this then? What are you you trying to tell me? What are you trying to direct me? What do you want to accomplish in and through this? Once again, this is a general principle. However, 
is God God or is he not God? If he is God and is all-knowing and perfectly in control of everything, his design is perfect. His design, even in trials, I believe is specific. Second principle that I want you to see this morning is God's purpose in your trials. God's purpose in your trial is change. It is to transform us. The purpose of Joseph's test of his brothers is to induce or display change. Up to this point, as far as Joseph knows, his brothers have been driven by a self-centered attitude. They have been self-serving. 22 years earlier, Joseph had stood in the way of their desires and their ambitions, and so they had gotten rid of him. That's exactly what they had done. They had even personally profited by their sin in getting rid of Joseph. They'd sold him for money, actual money. They had profited out of their selfishness, their self-centeredness. Now Joseph is testing them again. Are they still self-serving? Are they willing to do wrong to get ahead? Have they had a change of heart? This test is designed to display a change if there has been one or cause a change if at this point there had not yet been one. Do they feel differently than they did before? Do they believe differently than they did before? And will that be shown in what they actually do? It is obvious this well-designed test did reveal and prompt change. Look again at the brother's response in verse 16. What shall we say? to my Lord. What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves. God has found out. What was the change that had taken place there? They accepted responsibility for their sin. They recognized the wrong that they had committed against Joseph, and they actually uttered it to him. The last time, they were just speaking among themselves. <laughs> we're guilty. His blood is upon us because of this. They're just talking among themselves. And that was probably the first time in a long time they'd even done that. I'm sure they took a, a bit of a vow of silence there. <laughs> After they took the blood-stained coat back to Jacob and said, uh, we don't know where Joseph is. Perhaps he's been mauled to death by a wild animal. And from that moment on, I'm pretty sure that not a lot was said about it. As many lies go, they try to cover it up and bury it and even try to forget it. And 20 years later, they are confronted with it. And they talk amongst themselves about this. Say, we are guilty. He cried out. He pleaded with us. And we sold him into slavery. We threw him into the pit and then we sold him into slavery and so now Joseph, in his design of this test for them, is, is trying to elicit that response, both of their communication of their guilt, which he has accomplished, and also the actual change of their heart displayed in change of their actions. You can see that change of heart, at least in the acceptance of blame. You could see it in verse 16, which we just looked at. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. But you can also see acceptance or responsibility for sin in verse 31 and 32 because you have a change of attitude here which does express itself in action as well. Verse 31, this is Judah speaking. This is going back to speaking of his father. When my father sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. So your servants will, that is your servants, us brothers, 
will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Because, or for, in verse 32, your servant became surety. I was a promise to him. For the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. There's a big change when blame is, is accepted, when responsibility is taken. And we see that here, the expression of it. It's interesting that now they are able to, because of this, the specific test that has been applied to them, they respond in a specific way by taking responsibility for what they have done wrong. And even responsibility here for what they haven't done wrong in the case of Benjamin. It's interesting that they do not lay the responsibility at Joseph's feet, and they rightly could have. But Judah could have said, I will, because what he does say is, I'll bear the blame forever. I would have said, is Joseph, if you don't allow Benjamin to go back, I wouldn't use the name Joseph, because I didn't know who it was, but, oh, prince of Egypt, if you do not allow Benjamin to return, you will bear the blame of my father's death and sorrow. Oh, prince of Egypt, you will bear the blame forever. Because that's who actually would have been at fault. But we see a major, massive change in the attitude and the heart of his brothers here. That they take responsibility. These brothers have gone from a grievous lie 20 some years earlier and denial, 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 denial. They've gone from that to accepting blame and responsibility. They have definitely had a change of heart. Isn't that what God's purpose in our trials is? To give us a change of heart? God does bring, he does allow trials and tests with purpose. He doesn't do it without purpose. We looked at that two weeks ago. It isn't coincidental. If whatever we're going through is designed to draw us to God, to grow our faith, to convict of sin, it is perfectly designed to bring about that change. God is not content with you remaining where you are today. God wants to accomplish a work in you. He wants you to be more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, more transformed to, to walk like and to talk like and to look like Jesus Christ. Now, maybe some of you, as you grow and become seniors, you think, this is it. I've made it to where God wants me to be. That's not a mentality. That's not a good mentality to have. God's desire is to continue transforming you further and further into the image of Jesus Christ until he comes back to take you home where he makes you perfectly like Jesus Christ. Don't become content with what you have been allotted in life at this point. God wants to change you. God will change you. He's going to transform you one way or another. <laughs> Blessings are through trials. He'll accomplish his purpose, making you like his son. And what he brings is perfect. So God brings and allows these trials, these tests to transform us. His purpose is to change us. That goes back to that children's song. Little by little, he's changing me. Doesn't matter what age you're at. Little by little, he's changing me. My precious Savior. I'm not the same person that I used to be. It's slow growing, but there's a knowing that one day, or that Jesus is changing me, that he, and one day he will completely, perfectly change me into his image. God's purpose in your trials is change. One way or another, his purpose is transformation. I'm not going to give you the last two points. I'll give them to you as titles so you know that we are going somewhere. We're not just leaving it here. 
God delights, or God's delight through your trials is obedience. That change of heart, he wants it displayed in a change of action. That's why he's changing you. So that it produces something different in your life. There was a, a change here in this story in, in Joseph's brothers, in their heart, and that was demonstrated a change of action. We'll look at that next week. But then also God's reward for your trials is abundant. God's reward for your trials is abundant. Look at the very first verse of chapter 45. This is after it's all been revealed. They've accepted responsibility. Jude has basically said, listen, take me. Don't take Benjamin. I'll stay here. I'll sacrifice myself for Benjamin and for my father. And at that point, in verse Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. God's reward for your trials is blessing, abundant, abundant blessing. Now, we'll look next week at what exactly that entails, how that looks both here and eternally. But if we want to take Old Testament analogies, basically, and put them into New Testament context, what was the reward for Joseph's brothers? The reward was Joseph made himself known to them. As a result of a change of action, which stemmed from a change of attitude, Joseph revealed himself. What is the greatest result, the greatest reward, as we come through tests and trials in victory is that God reveals himself to us. He makes himself more and more known. He takes off that, that which blinds us or hinders us from seeing him clearly. And is not the trial well worth the greater knowing of Jesus Christ? Doesn't the outcome make it all worthwhile? Sometimes that's hard to say. Sometimes it's hard to see. It's hard to believe. One day, it'll all make perfect sense. But even now, in the midst of trials and difficulties, God rewards abundantly. And the greatest reward is relationship, that we grow in relationship with Jesus Christ. God's reward is abundant. So I would encourage you to realize God has a plan. It's a perfect plan. The plan is for your good. And so he's going to bring or allow trials. They're specific, most likely. Maybe not, but most likely they're specific for you. Designed for you, perfectly for you, by a perfect, all-knowing God. And they're designed to bring change. Change in your heart and then change in your actions so that you would more align with the person of Jesus Christ. Yield to him, surrender to him, allow him to accomplish as he desires in you and through you. And you'll begin to see the blessing, the blessing of knowing him more and more, even in the face of more and more trials, which further continue to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are committed to doing a perfect work. Your word tells us that he who began a good work in us will be faithful faithful to complete it. You are faithful to complete what you begin. You have loved us with an, an everlasting love, an unending love, perfect love. In our brokenness, 
in our sinfulness, you demonstrated your love towards us in sending your Son to die for us. You did not, from the moment of salvation, abandon us, but that you continue to do a work in us, and we give you thanks for that. And in this work of setting us apart from sin and setting us apart to you more and more, you use trials and tests. We thank you that you're not content with us the way we are. We thank you that you are invested in us and you are refining us. Help us even when we don't understand the refining process to yield, to bow before you and say, Lord, whatever your will is, I know it is good. We want to see your will done. And help us to rejoice knowing that you have laid up for us an eternal inheritance which does not fade away, that there is an outcome in mind, and it is, it is beyond good. It is awesome. And so help us to rejoice in you as we wait for the day when you will make yourself fully known and when we will be made fully like you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.